Galatians chapter 5, the words of the living and true God. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this beautiful Lord's Day. We thank you for the privilege of getting to gather together in your name. Lord, we pray now that you'd be pleased to bless the preaching of your word. May it be uh, glorifying to you, may it be edifying to your people, and may you bless it unto the conversion of sinners. Lord, we pray that you would uh, grant us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to, under uh, to receive, and minds to understand. Lord, bless the preaching of your word. May you be glorified in it. May you use your word to accomplish the purpose for which you sent it. Lord, get me out of the way. May it be your truth and nothing but your truth that is spoken and remembered. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So we pick up again with our series in Galatians, and to recap, uh, Galatians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the churches in the region of Galatia. Paul has been addressing the teaching of the Judaizers, uh, men in Galatia who had been teaching that the Gentiles needed first to become Jewish before they could become Christians. Uh, they were teaching things like circumcision and other elements of ceremonial law as being necessary for salvation. And so Paul has identified the teaching of the Judaizers as a false gospel, a different gospel, one that is truly no gospel at all. The Judaizers, according to Paul, are turning to the flesh instead of the spirit, law instead of promise, works instead of grace, and slavery instead of sonship. Paul has been drawing from the Old Testament, uh, showing that salvation, as far back as Abraham, has always been by grace through faith. Abraham himself having been justified by faith. Paul has been showing that it is those who belong to Christ who are the true children of Abraham. Simply being Abraham's physical descendant or sharing in circumcision is not enough. For at that point, you are in the same boat as Ishmael, the son of the slave woman. You must instead be a child of promise, like Isaac. And Paul says at the end of chapter 4 that it is Christians, those with faith in Jesus Christ, who are the true children of promise. They are children not of the slave woman, Hagar, but of the free woman. That brings us to chapter 5. Let's read together. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, tell you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Christians are free men. They are not children under a guardian, they are sons and heirs. They have not been born of the slave woman, but have been born of the free woman. They are children not of the earthly, but of the heavenly Jerusalem. 
Those who lived in slavery to sin, in slavery to the false gods of the pagans, or in slavery to the law, have been set free in Christ. There is liberty and freedom in him. That's how Paul uh, describes the Christian faith here. It is freedom. And so Paul calls on the Galatians, Christ has set you free, so don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. What a powerful image. Imagine a slave who had been granted freedom from an oppressive master walking back to his shackles. Picture a free man returning to a cage, choosing chains and bondage when freedom had already been granted. Now Paul has compared the works righteousness of the Judaizers to the slavery of paganism. Striving to earn your own justification, uh, to earn your own right standing before God by works of the law, is a work, uh, is a form of bondage. You are then in slavery to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world. It is slavery to something that cannot save, just as the slavery of paganism had been for the Gentile, Galatians. So do not return, do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Why would you go back to slavery of any form when Christ has already set you free? Now there is this false idea out there that those who are non-religious are the ones who are truly free, while Christians are constrained by all these religious rules and commandments. Hear me closely. There is no freedom in sin. The Lord Jesus said in John 8, verse 34, Anyone who sins is a slave to sin. Brothers and sisters, slavery to sin is not freedom. And we see from Scripture that the nature of fallen man is not free. We are by nature in bondage to sin. We are by nature under the dominion of Satan, and he is a cruel master. There is no freedom in sin, only slavery. And whatever short-term pleasure sin may offer, we know that it will only ultimately lead to despair and corruption. Galatians 6 verse 7 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. A man reaps what he sows. If you sow seeds of sin, seeds of rebellion to God, you will reap a harvest of corruption. For that is the only fruit that sin can produce. In Christ, we are set free. The Holy Spirit transforms our hearts and then lives in us. And so, notice this, in our conversion, God actually frees our will. In our conversion, God frees our will. We are no longer in bondage to sin. We are no longer enslaved by our corrupt natures, but we are set free in Christ. We are set free in Christ. So, brothers and sisters, let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. It is not the unbelievers who are free. As Pastor Toby Sumter writes, the Bible does not teach that God is the great Grinch in the sky, fuming about people trying to have fun. No, that is the devil, only he knows that he has to sell his despair in bottles labeled fun. But God is the one who invented this place. He loaded it with good things and created us to enjoy it all. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. God commands what he commands 
for our good. God sets us free in Christ. He frees us from our bondage to the world, our own sinful flesh, and the devil. And so we must not look with envy on sinners and think that they are the ones who are truly free. We must not be deceived into believing that those whom the Bible says are in slavery to sin are the ones who are actually living in freedom. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Christian, you are free in Christ. You have been set free from the bondage to sin you were once under. Do not return to slavery. Do not go back to that yoke of oppression. There is no life to be found there. There is no freedom there. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Do not return to a life of slavery to sin. Continuing on. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Here is the root of the issue. If you depend on anything else alongside Christ, you do not have Christ. Put it simply, Christ plus anything equals nothing. The problem that Paul saw with the message of the Judaizers Again, they're teaching that circumcision is necessary for salvation. The problem Paul saw was that this represented an alternative path to justification. As he says in verse 4, this was an attempt to be justified by works of the law. Alright, big word. What is justification? To be justified is to be declared righteous by God. A justified person is someone whom God, as the judge, would grant approval to. So to be justified is to be right before God, is to have a right standing before Him. It is therefore to be saved. Those who are justified will receive eternal life. Those who are justified will not be punished for their sins, but having been declared righteous by God, they will be rewarded. And Galatians is all about this doctrine, justification. How can a sinner be made right with God? How can a sinner be justified? The answer of the Judaizers Faith plus works. Now, as we've covered previously, there's no indication that the Judaizers were denying anything of the life, death, resurrection of Christ, nor even that they denied the necessity of faith in Christ. And so, their error does not seem to be an error of subtraction, right? They didn't seem to be taking anything away from the gospel. Their error was that they tried to add to it. Uh, faith alone in Christ alone, they said, was not enough. Not enough for justification. Not enough to make someone an heir of Abraham. But there is something more that is needed. Something more they were teaching that people needed to do. It was faith plus. Faith plus works. Faith plus circumcision. And therefore, your faith, your confidence, that on which you were relying on for salvation, was no longer Christ alone. But mixed into the equation 
was now some of your own works. And so Paul explains here, this is not an option. It is not possible to have your reliance be split between Christ and yourself. By adding anything to Christ, to faith, you lose Christ. You lose faith. You are then left on your own to establish your own righteousness. And here is why that is trouble. Verse 3. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. F.F. Bruce writes, let no one think that the law's demands can be satisfied by a token compliance with this or that requirement, such as circumcision. The law's demands can only be satisfied by total performance. Close quote. God's standard is perfection. There is nothing wrong with the law itself. But the fact is, no sinner will ever be able to earn their own justification through works of the law. This is because the law requires perfection. And we are born sinners. Now how did we get like this? Did God create us as sinful people? Well, no. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were given a choice. If they would obey God, if they would live as he required, they would have been confirmed in a state of blessing. But they sinned and became sinners. Their nature was now fallen. And so, they were only able to reproduce more of what they were. Sinners. And so ever since that covenant was broken, no sinful son or daughter of Adam and Eve has been capable of working to earn salvation. That option is off the table. We are born into a broken covenant, and we find ourselves under its curse, the curse of death. And as we've seen in Galatians, the law of God given to Moses at Sinai was never intended to be a path, uh, to be a means of granting life. It was never a path to justification. Galatians 3.21, the law was not given as a means of granting life. So it is utter foolishness for anyone to live as if it were possible for them to work to earn salvation. That ship sailed in the Garden of Eden. That opportunity was lost as that covenant was broken. We come into this world as sinners, inheriting the fallen nature of our father Adam. We are sinners from day one, by nature and then by choice. And so working to earn salvation is out of the question. So do you see how foolish it would be, or it is, to trust in your own law-keeping? God's standard is perfection, and you and me are already sinners. Right? Even if it were possible for you to be perfect from this day forward, to never sin again, have you not already sinned? Are you not already fallen in Adam? Have you not already broken God's law in innumerable ways? So don't look to the law as a means of salvation. If you try to do so, you will find yourself in slavery. And the law will be a cruel master. Not because of any problem with the law itself, but because all that the law has the power to do for a fallen sinner is reveal God's standard. Right? All that it can do is pronounce condemnation. 
right? You can strive, you can work, you can try to keep all the laws, perform all the rituals, but it will never be enough because after all of your striving, all of your efforts at self-justification, you will come back again to the law and it will still pronounce you guilty. All that the law has the power to do for a sinner is to show them what they are. And so no matter how much you strive, no matter how rigorously you give yourself to self-improvement, you will keep coming back to find the same verdict. Guilty. Guilty. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. All are cursed who go that route. For the law pronounces a curse on anyone who breaks it. I cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. None of us have done all the things written in the book of the law. We have all broken God's law. And so the law simply does what it can, and it condemns us. It simply tells us we are sinners. It shows us the very many ways that we have failed to measure up to God's perfect standard. So the law then, rightly understood, points us beyond itself. It shows us our need for help, our need for a savior, a substitute, our need for one who would bear our curse and provide our righteousness, keep the law on our behalf. And this is exactly what we have in Christ. Here's our confession on the doctrine of justification. Those God effectually calls, he also freely justifies. He does this not by infusing righteousness into them, but by pardoning their sins and accounting and accepting them as righteous. He does this for Christ's sake alone, and not for anything produced in them or done by them. He does not impute faith itself the act of believing, or any other gospel obedience to them as their righteousness. Instead, he imputes Christ's active obedience to the whole law and passive obedience in his death as their whole and only righteousness by faith. And this faith is not self-generated, it is the gift of God. Close quote. Now two key terms I want to focus on here. God imputes, now that is, God credits Christ's active and passive obedience to us. Now, what does that mean? What are we talking about with Christ's active and passive obedience? Well, Christ's passive obedience refers to his death on the cross in our place, uh, bearing the wrath of God, taking the penalty that was due to the sins of his people. Uh, Christ's passive obedience is what we typically think of as the passion of, of the Christ, drinking the cup of wrath for us, shedding his blood on our behalf, becoming our sacrificial lamb, uh, being given as a sin offering to make propitiation for the sins of his people, as Christ's passive obedience. But there's another element to his work that is vital for us to understand, and is especially important as we are discussing matters of law-keeping and how law-keeping relates to justification, right? We're looking at this question, can my works, do my works, how do my works relate to my salvation? And so we need to understand Christ's active obedience. So catch this, it is not only Christ's death in our place that we need, Wayne Grudem points out, if Christ had only earned forgiveness of sins for us, then we would not merit heaven. Our guilt would have been removed, 
but we would simply be in the position of Adam and Eve before the fall. Close quote. So Christ did not merely grant us a clean slate from, from which we now work to earn salvation. Rather, Christ kept the whole law on our behalf. That is Christ's active obedience. Christ kept the whole law on our behalf. That is his active obedience. So you can think of it this way. We don't only need Christ's death, we need his life. His life of perfect obedience, keeping fully and completely every law, every precept, every commandment, every instruction of God, not only the letter of the law, but fulfilling the heart of the law. Christ has done it all, and he has done it perfectly. Now, Christ was born by the power of the Holy Spirit to the Virgin Mary. He therefore had a perfect human nature. Right? He did not inherit the sin of Adam as we do. And so he could thereby function as a second Adam. And in every way that the first Adam failed, Christ succeeded. Jesus faced down the same serpent in the wilderness temptation. And where Adam fell, Christ was victorious. Jesus lived a perfect life. By faith, we are then united to Christ. By faith, God then imputes or credits to us the passive and active obedience of Christ. And so, we are justified, declared righteous, solely and completely on the basis of Christ's finished work. And what Paul explains is that if your faith is in Christ, it must be completely in Christ. He alone is to be the object of our faith. It is on him we rely, on him we depend, and therefore to him that we are looking for our justification. And that trust, that reliance, cannot be divided. Verse 4. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. Brothers and sisters, Christ has provided us with his perfect righteousness, his perfect law-keeping. How foolish to think we could improve upon it. Paul explains that you can't have it both ways. If your reliance is divided, you are severed from Christ. Right? These are two mutually exclusive paths. Right, on the final day, you can either hand Christ's righteousness to God or your own. You know, which of those will justify? You cannot walk the path of self-reliance and the path of faith in Christ at the same time. There is a fork in the road. It is one or the other. And honestly, why would you want to? Christ has given you everything. He is a perfect Savior. His law-keeping was perfect, and by faith alone it is counted to you. Don't spoil it by trying to improve upon it. You know, one pastor gave the illustration. Uh, imagine that you had an extremely rare baseball card, right? Something that was worth millions of dollars. Now, how much would that card be worth if you decided to improve it by adding your own personal touch? So you pull out a Sharpie and sign this million-dollar baseball card. How much is that card now worth? Zero. Right? By trying to improve upon it, you ruin it. By trying to add to Christ, you lose Christ. By trying to add to faith, you lose faith. Faith is receiving and resting upon Christ alone for salvation. 
If your trust is not completely in him, but divided between Christ and your law-keeping, then Paul's words are a warning to you. You are severed from Christ. You would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Jesus Christ is all our hope and peace. He alone is all our righteousness. Put your faith, your trust, your hope, and reliance completely on him. Now, a verse like this, with a warning like this, right, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. Uh, a verse like this raises a question. Can a true Christian lose their salvation? Do we believe in once saved, always saved? Is that what the Bible teaches? Well, if somebody asked me that question, I would respond, well, that depends. What do you think that means? Right, I want to know, what are your assumptions? What are you actually asking? And what people often mean is, well, once saved, always saved, means that anyone who makes a profession of faith at one point in their life basically gets their ticket to heaven punched. Right? They believed in Christ, they were therefore justified by faith, now they are good to go, no matter what. And I've actually seen people approach evangelism this way. A ministry that was aimed entirely at getting people to say the sinner's prayer, and if the person did that, they were supposed to write it down on a card and date it. Later, if they were wondering whether they were truly saved, they were supposed to take out that card uh, and look at it, and you'd see, there, there's your proof. There's your evidence. There's your proof that you are truly saved. You said that prayer. You had faith. Now you're good to go. You can live like a pagan. You can deny the Lord Jesus Christ, but as long as you pray the prayer at one point in your life, as long as at one point you made a profession, you will be saved, right? Once saved, always saved. And so if that's what somebody means by once saved, always saved, then our answer as a church would be no. We do not believe that. We acknowledge Scripture speaks of apostasy, right? People who make shipwreck of their faith. You can likely think of some people that you know who at one point in their lives have claimed to be Christians but have now abandoned the faith they once professed. So how do we view apostasy? Are people truly losing their salvation? Right? Is it possible for someone who was truly justified, truly born again, truly regenerate to become unjustified, unborn again, unjustified? Regenerate. And to that, we would also say no. Now, there are a lot of texts we could look at, but turn with me to Jesus' words in John chapter 6, verse 37. And we'll move quickly here. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all he has given me, but rather raise it up on the last day. So follow his logic. All those whom the Father has given to the Son will come to him. Right? That is, they will come to Christ in faith. Jesus says he has come to do the will of the Father, and the Father's will is that he would lose none of those who are given to him and to come to him in faith, but rather raise them up at the last day. So here's a question. Will the Son fail to fulfill the Father's will? May it never be. So, all of those given of the Father to the Son will come. That is describing uh, coming and saving faith. Uh, if the Son fulfills the Father's will, then those who truly come in faith to Him will not be lost, 
but will be raised up at the last day. Or we could consider the golden chain of redemption in Romans chapter 8. Romans 8 verse 30 says this, And those whom God predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So see that unbreakable chain. Those who are justified will be glorified. Right? It's actually given here in, in the past tense. It's a prophetic perfect, uh, speaking of something future as if it were past tense. That's how sure this thing is. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, glorified means saved. They will be resurrected, granted new bodies. And so here's why it's tricky when someone asks you about once saved, always saved. Scripture does teach that those who are truly saved, truly born again, truly justified, right? Those whom the Father has elected, the Son has redeemed, the Spirit has regenerated, those whose hearts of stone have been replaced with hearts of flesh, who have true saving faith in Christ, will not and cannot be lost. So if someone was ever truly saved, then yes, they will always be saved. But we see that there is such a thing as a false profession of faith. Right? There will be people who make a profession of faith for a time and appear outwardly to be true believers who eventually fall away. And Jesus told us as much in the parable of the soils. You may remember that parable. The sower went out and scattered seed. Some of it landed on the path where it was trampled and devoured by the birds of the air. Jesus says, these are those who never receive the word at all. Some seed falls on the rocky soil, and it springs up quickly, but has no root, and so withers and dies. Jesus says, these are those who fall away in a time of testing. Other seed falls along the thorns, and though it sprouted, the thorns eventually choke it out. These are those who hear, but as they go on their way, are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life. Finally, some seed fell on good soil, where it grew and yielded a hundredfold. They are those who hear the word, hold fast to it in an honest and good heart, and bear fruit with patience. Luke 8, 15. Now the point of that parable is not to tell people to try to be a certain type of soil, but rather to prepare his disciples for the different kinds of responses that they will encounter as they preach the gospel. Right? There will be people in whom it seems the word has taken root, right? people who profess faith and appear to be genuine, but quickly fall away, as with the rocky soil, or fall away at some later time as they are choked by the concerns of life. And so for these people, it is not that they had salvation once and then lost it. Rather, they never had it in the first place. Like they were never born again. They never had new hearts. The root of the matter was not in them. So it's not that these people had salvation and lost it. Rather, they never had it in the first place. And so Jesus tells us to expect this. There will be false professors who make a profession for a time and then fall away. However, we've also seen those who are truly saved, those who are the good soil, cannot be lost. Those who are justified will be glorified. Christ will not fail to do the Father's will. But now that all raises another question. And that is this, how are we to understand these kinds of warning passages? Right? Why are there warnings like this in the Bible if true believers cannot fall away but will be kept by Christ? And the answer is found in understanding the way in which Christ preserves his people. We need to catch this. Warnings are a means, a means that God uses to preserve his elect. Now what does that mean? 
It means that God uses warnings, he uses passages like this to keep his people on the right path. Now, the Christian life is not a smooth conveyor belt ride up into heaven. Right? It is a battle. We are at war with our own indwelling sin. We are at war with the world, the flesh, the devil, principalities and powers. And so God, in his sovereignty, has chosen for us not to simply be zapped with the holiness ray and then never struggle again, but rather he has chosen to use various means to strengthen and to preserve our faith. All right, what are some of those means? Well, we are to pray. We are to read the word. We are to be part of church community. But you could ask, what's the point of all those things if true believers will be saved? You know, we just wait for it you know, to be brought to heaven. And that's just not the way God has set things up. These are all means that God uses to strengthen our faith, to preserve us, and then to keep us on the right path. It's not something that happens automatically, you might say. And so it is not a mechanical type of security we have. Rather, God uses various means to preserve and sanctify his people, and warnings are one of those means. Now, to give an illustration of how this works, I remember a pastor who told a story of a couple that came to him for marriage counseling. Uh, the woman had been having an affair, and she was in the pastor's study talking to him, and he told her, you have to break this off, and she was like, no, I don't really, don't really want to. And so he got serious with her and said, do you not know that if you persevere in this sin, you're going to go to hell? She was flabbergasted. She began to protest. Well, that's, that's not what my last pastor told me. He told me I was eternally secure. She quoted Romans 8. Nothing can separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. You know, in essence, her view was, my ticket is punched. You know, I'm good to go. I have my divine fire insurance policy. The pastor looked at her and said, that's not what that verse means. And he quoted her a warning, something like 1 Corinthians 6.9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminates, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Said that woman's face changed. She was shocked. But she broke off the affair, and 28 years later, she was still married to her husband. The pastor gave another similar example, and he said he still gets a Christmas card in the mail every year from another lady he had rebuked in a similar way, thanking him for warning her, saving her marriage, and being used by God to save her soul. There are warnings in Scripture. Those who persevere in a lifestyle of unrepentant sin will be damned. And they will show that the root of the matter was not in them by their lifestyle of sin. And so do not take any false comfort in a theological system that you've worked out that allows you to sin all you want and think you're going to get away with it. That is not how this works. You cannot make a mockery of God's grace like that. Those who persevere in sin will be damned. Those who persevere in sin will be damned. But if you are born again, if you are a true Christian, then God will use warnings like this to bring you back to the right path, like he did with those women. The Spirit of God will stir up in you such a holy anxiety that you will take urgent action to put sin to death as you come to realize that this sin is endangering your soul.
And so this was Paul's hope for the Galatians. That they would become aware of the seriousness of the matter. That they would come to realize that they were playing with fire. This is not a trivial matter. This is damnable heresy. If you seek justification by the law, you are severed from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. And so the true believer at that point, indwelt by the Spirit, hearing a warning like this, they are then driven to repentance. Right? The thought of being severed from Christ is so terrifying that they are driven to repentance. That's how the warnings function. So brothers and sisters, take them seriously. Do not dismiss them. Do not be casual about sin or false teaching. God gave these warnings for a reason. Heed them. Respond to them. Be sanctified by them. The same is true for those who don't know Christ. The warnings are there for a reason. If you die without knowing Christ, you will face God's wrath. Repent and believe. Verse 5. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Now, if the law is your chosen path, you have no hope of righteousness. The law will not bring you justification. For all that the law can do for a sinner is show them God's righteous standard and then pronounce them guilty. But catch this, through the Spirit, by faith, Christians, those who are in Christ, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. F.F. Bruce writes, The hope of righteousness is the hope of a favorable verdict in the last judgment. For those who believe in Christ, such a verdict is assured in advance by the present experience of justification by faith. Close quote. Brothers and sisters, see Christ and know that he is the end of striving. If we think that our justification is dependent on our works, unless we are completely and utterly self-deceived, we will be in terror. For the law by which we are striving to earn our way to God does nothing but condemn us. If our hope is in ourselves, then unless we are deceived, we will be utterly hopeless and despondent. For we know in our heart of hearts that we can never do enough. Our good deeds, our law-keeping, our efforts at self-justification, all our righteousness is as filthy rags. But if you know Christ, then you eagerly await the hope of righteousness. And do so through the Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of adoption, who testifies with your spirit that you are a child of God, Romans 8, 16. That Spirit within you that causes you to cry out, Abba, Father. Through the Spirit, by faith, we eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. We eagerly wait. For we know we have peace with God. On that day, the day of final judgment, God will not be there as our frightful judge, for we will not stand on the basis of what we have done. But through our union with Christ by faith, because of our union with Christ by faith, we will be received by God as his beloved son. So the words you will then hear, the eternal weight of glory, too magnificent for human minds, 
Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. The hope of righteousness is in Christ and in Christ alone. He has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. By faith, we are imputed with his passive obedience, his substitutionary death on the cross, where he died to pay our ransom, to make propitiation, to reconcile us to God. By faith, we also receive his active obedience, his complete, perfect, and total obedience to every precept of the law of God, fulfilling everything that God requires of man. You stand before God, clothed in Christ's perfect righteousness. He looks at you, and it is to the righteousness of Christ that he says, well done, good and faithful servant. What a blessing that you are wrapped in Christ's righteousness. His obedience, counted to us, received by faith, in this is freedom. Christ has set us free, free from the weak and worthless elementary principles, free from our bondage and slavery to sin, free from false religions, seeking to appease those who are not true gods. And we are free from all works of righteousness. Christ is the end of striving, the end of seeking to earn that which could never be earned. Brothers and sisters, rest in the hope of righteousness, the joyful confidence of knowing that your peace with God is not grounded in your performance, but in the work of another. Praise and glorify your magnificent Savior with every part of your life. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the abundance of mercy you've showered upon us. We thank you that our peace with you, our hope of righteousness, is not in ourselves, but it is only the finished work of Christ alone. Lord, we pray that you would bless each person here with a deeper understanding of this glorious gospel that we are righteous in Christ, that it is only through him that we may be saved. We ask that you would bless each person here now. Uh, may these truths sink into our hearts, and may they produce the fruit that you intend. We pray this all in Jesus' name.